Hello, and welcome back to They Made Another One, where each week we study an often forgotten installment in a franchise and see if you should check it out for yourself. I'm... Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you so confused? <laughs> no, that's right. Uh, I So normally I pull that up in front of me. Uh, and I didn't. I was looking at the Wikipedia page for the movie we watched, but just reciting it from memory. And I got most of the way through it before realizing that I wasn't reading it. And that threw me off. And that sounded very audible. <laughs> uh, I'm one of your hosts, Corey. And with me, I have Liam. Hey. We're going to keep it. We're going to make it work. We got plenty of, of traips and follies for you today. And we have Mitch. Towards the close of the last century, when history still war arose and politics had not yet outgrown the waltz, a great royal scandal was whispered in the anterooms of Europe. However true it was, any resemblance in the prisoner of Zenda to heroes, villains, or heroines, living or dead, is a coincidence not intended. Well, there you have it, folks. Let's not let's not waste time. Mitch, you've been on this show for a while. We've arguably wasted a lot of yours with some movies that maybe are not great and so in deference to your commitment to the show we made a pact and that pact was after doing our traditional season launching texas chainsaw massacre we would drink each other's blood and 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 write a message with a goose quill and the blood yes and that message said next week prisoner of zenda yeah yeah we did it it's been a long time coming really i mean uh, i've i've hyped this movie up perhaps to impossible heights to heights that (laughs) i I even knew that it would never live up to um but i did it anyway you know sometimes you just have to i think sometimes you know personal attachment can go beyond you know the realm of the real (laughs) yes and you just start going wild and i mean we're buckling for the first time on this show probably not the last it better not be um for anybody who's not in the know with all the hip zoomer lingo uh that's short <laughs> for swashbuckling um so what if, well what if someone isn't hip with the boomer lingo and doesn't know what swashbuckling is i feel like swashbuckling is almost like greatest generation like it's even older than the boomer i feel like swashbuckling is a transcendental thought though like anybody who saw like a pirates of the caribbean gets the idea (laughs) you get the idea but i don't think the swashbuckler exists or not as it used to there's still traces everywhere but it, it ain't it ain't what it used to be this is our attempt to bring it back into the limelight yes who better to do it than us who better to reanimate the corpse of the swashbuckler i mean we see a lot of corpses on this channel like last week it was corpse 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 but you know this week it's gonna be it's all about grace it's all about when when politics war arose and or when history war arose and politics had not yet outgrown the waltz that's what it's all about and we've got a sword fight in it Yes, a sword fight, which a singular, extensive sword fight, an exquisite sword fight, but only one. Which I is... heard Liam maybe potentially hit us with a bit of a sharp inhale there. Did I catch that right when we talked about sword fighting? A singular sword fight. It, I, I, it may have been subconscious. We'll explore it later, I guess. Sure. Okay. So, Mitch, I don't want to dilly, don't want to dally. Right. The Prisoner of Zenda, nineteen fifty-two. 
Sure. Richard Thorpe directed. What are we dealing with here? What is this? So you're dealing with a long line of adventure fiction. Uh, it's based on a novel by Anthony Hope, which uh, was written in 1894. Anthony Hope is one of the great sort of adventure writers of that sort of um, early modern, late romantic vibe. And uh, pretty much what he was doing is he he and guys like Raphael Sabatini and... Uh, Alexander Dumas and a bunch of other sort of writers made these sort of adventure films, which would eventually become like the swashbucklers. They, when they made these movies in the twenties and and thirties, that was the heyday of the swashbuckler. Um, they, they adapted from classic sources. And so the prisoner of Zenda has been remade many, many times first in nine and stage and film, but first in film is 1913. Then they followed up really quickly in 1915. Uh, with another one so I couldn't wait two years it's kind of like today um, if it ain't broke yeah it's kind of like today we need, a, <laughs> we need another one uh and then in 1922 the prisoner of zenda was directed by rex ingram now i haven't seen that one but i have seen scaramouche uh from 1922 by rex ingram and uh prisoner of zenda and uh scaramouche are often compared side by side in fact in 1952 when this film was made uh, that very same year, they also made Scaramouche. Well, they, they made they made it before in uh, in the summer, and then they made this movie in November. And considering the scale of both productions coming out of MGM, that's kind of astonishing. Uh, both star Stuart Granger, uh, the '50s ones, anyway. And uh, then it was also remade in, in in 1937, and that is probably the most famous version with Ronald Coleman and Douglas Fairbanks, uh, Jr. And uh, it's oh, and David Niven as well. He's in that too. Mary Astor, um, but yeah. Uh, and then so the 1952 version came out, and it's pretty much a shot by shot remake of the 1937 version. Um, even the dialogue is actually like virtually unchanged. This the 52 version was accredited to a fellow named Wells Root originally, but then in 1990, <laughs> yeah, I know. Such a good name. Wells, there's roots in my whale. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and then uh, in 1999, the credit was also given to Donald Ogden Stewart, but he was actually blacklisted in 1952, or in, at some point in the 50s, so he didn't actually get Oh, credit. so he was cool? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> he wrote the dialogue in the 30s version, which is pretty much the same, but he didn't get any credit because he was a commie. Uh, so this film uh, stars Stewart Granger in a whopping two roles as Rudolph Rassendil and king rudolph uh then you've got deborah kerr who uh you might know um from a few movies and then uh princess flavia is gene simmons who was actually married to Stuart granger at the time uh james mason who plays rupert of hensow and he's absolutely incredible uh louis calhern is colonel zapp Robert Coote as Fritz von Tallenheim, and then Robert Douglas as the Duke of Stressau, Michael. Uh, Louis Stone as the Cardinal, who is a swashbuckler regular. He's in, he's in quite a few. He's also in Scaramouche. Um, he's the OG Rudolph, by the way, in the 1922 is. movie. He is, yeah. he's He <laughs> was an absolute veteran of, of bucklers. So yeah, there's a, a long and storied history, but that's our cast. The film is about, well, the film is an example of Ruritanian fiction, which is 
uh, <laughs> which which describes the kind of fiction that was actually invented by Anthony Hope. And of course, Prisoner of Zenda is set in the fictional nation state of Ruritania. And Ruritanian fiction is kind of a tradition of like setting stories in small European micronations, which do not exist. And <laughs> what so, a, what a stupidly specific genre. Yeah. Well, I mean, so it's you can think of like films by Ernst Lubitsch from like the 30s. He did that all the time. Yeah, totally. smiling, smiling lieutenants, or all those movies. And uh, also, Wes Anderson did it more recently with the Grand Budapest Hotel. Yes. And so you've you've got like this fine tradition of of like impossibly elegant European micronations that <laughs> that might exist. The Princess Diaries, another great example. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's it, it's that. And uh, in in this case, we have just a classic stock plot of uh, of mistaken identity. There's a king. He likes to drink a bit too much. He meets a distant cousin who's come to visit uh, Ruritania. Invites him over for a bottle of wine. His coronation's tomorrow, but there is a coup, and it's Michael and uh, von Hetzau have uh, have pretty much launched a plot to drug the king to make him miss his coronation, so that his brother Michael can become the king of Ruritania. Doesn't fall through. Doesn't or doesn't doesn't pan out because they uh, they shave Stuart Granger's mustache, who's playing uh, Rupert Rassendil. Get and some boot shine on those, of, on those temples. Yeah, Rudolph Rassendil, they put boot blacking on his temples to get rid of the gray. And then he goes to the coronation, impersonating the king. And then he's like, well, like, how long do I have to do this for? Only a night, only a night. Don't worry about it. But then the king is kidnapped and hijinks and swashbuckling ensue. And that's the setup. That's the story. It's a story as old as, as the movie business itself. Um, but somehow I, I think it still works. Um, so, yeah that's that's where i'm gonna leave it that's my that's my setup for now great thank you it it felt important to defer to the experts here folks um i think that as evidenced by uh how quickly he just kind of rattled all that off um mitch is very much our guide into the uh swashbuckling realm into the classical film realm and uh seems like as good a time as any to throw it over to liam so liam uh (laughs) I don't even know how to how to phrase the question I want to ask. Um, do you watch movies like this often? What was your familiarity level with like the content that we were yeah. about to get into? I thought this was a real like I was a monkey with a wrench with this pick. I think, but, <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> keep going. No, dude, I can't think of uh, anything I've really seen like this besides stuff that we've all had to watch in film classes in university you know where they show you examples of movies from the 50s and of various genres and stuff um i really i don't think i have any sort of frame of reference i mean i've seen some old horror movies but even then my my knowledge in horror movies isn't that deep so whenever i get into movies from the I 50s disagree. or it seems deep <laughs> Of of old horror movies, I mm. should say, um, and at least my my experience with them, I might have the knowledge, but I don't have I, I haven't actually watched a lot of those. And so, um, when it comes to movies like from the fifties and prior, I, I'm I'm pretty much lost. Like even growing up, the classics in my house wasn't stuff like 
Casablanca and Gone with the Wind, which like Brianna, her family uh, was watching those all the time. And so Brianna really likes old movies because she was raised on that stuff. But in my house, the the farthest back we would go is like uh, Rocky and stuff from the 70s, Taxi Driver and stuff. So uh, um, it's a, it's a, it's all sort of new to me. It's amazing that this this style of movie was only 20 years before like carry and stuff yeah, like that it, because it, it, it feels a, a lifetime away it is crazy it's a, it's a completely different kind of blockbuster that like no longer exists it just it, like this kind of a movie doesn't doesn't exist but its traces are i think are seen everywhere like of, of the swashbuckler archetype like i think you see it in star wars i think you see it in guardians of the galaxy it was like the early kind of blockbuster of its day the early action film anyway and they turned them out really quick so I think the 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 traces of these movies' success can be seen everywhere in our in our film industry today, but the uh, the style is uh, is kind yeah. of lost. I think this is also a setting that people just seem less interested in. I think so. Now, um, it's got a very specific, like you said, brand of like unattainably lavish European micronation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's just like everything's very um, imperial. Oh yes. Uh, in its in its vibe and uh, in its in its costuming and in the sets, which are all just like look very large and expensive. Um, I think I sit somewhere between you both in terms of like classic film familiarity. Um, it's not a kind of movie that I end up watching all the time, but uh, my dad especially is like deep into it. Like he's the kind of person who has like TCM just on. You know, you Texas know, Chainsaw check. Massacre. Correct. No, certain uh, <laughs> no. classic movies. Hell yeah, Ben Mank. Um, yeah, with the boy ben, Benny Mank, and uh, so I've seen a handful of things that way. Um, you know, you've got like you know, like your Maltese Falcons, that kind of thing. Um, but within that subset, the Buckler is still kind of beyond me. Uh, Mitch, you did show me Scaramouche. We did uh, a couple months ago, uh, which feels like eons ago. It I must think it might have been said. a year. I think it might have been a year ago. I have no. It might have been more than a year ago now. Dang. I don't know anymore. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'm like passingly familiar, uh, and then obviously this kind of thing expands into like you know it's got a couple influences you can still kind of see now, or rather, its influence continues to be seen in a way. But yeah, uh, I was excited. Just to kind of, you know, mix it up a bit. We don't yeah, do this. This I, isn't uh, this is a big mix in the in the in the usual roster. Yeah, and I think we'll do it a little bit more regularly than we have been, uh, because it's a whole untapped variety of they made another one that we just aren't addressing to the point where if you go to the Wikipedia page for uh the 1952 movie. Uh, so there was this piece in 1952 uh, by Bosley Crowther. Uh, everybody's least favorite critic. Bosley Crowther, He's which just sounds like the fakest name. Oh, is my he gosh. actually full of shit? What a oh, villain. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was, not a, he was not a nice man. He was, yeah, he was a piece of shit. Uh, how how wrote, could you be with that name? Yeah, Bosley Crowther sounds like uh, 
your name basically is Dick Dastardly at yeah. that point. Nobody, yeah. nobody, everybody was kind of afraid of his reviews. Um, yeah, he wasn't. Sounds like an evil board game character. Yeah, he was. Not, yeah, an oil well, magnet. Uh, Mitch had mentioned that this is a remake of a remake of a remake, uh, and in a piece that this Bosley Crowther wrote. Uh, included, quote, his observations of what this picture bodes for the future in the then-current cycle of remakes, a hopeful but ironic trend. Yeah, uh, I think we're deep in the cut of the Prisoner of Zenda remake moment again in the film industry. Pretty much, yeah. It, it, it's weird how the... Because the, buck, the Bucklers were such an example of, like, really bankable sort of movies that everybody went to see. I think they were kind of like the epitome of the movies with like, with like beautiful stars and great action and adventures and lavish set pieces. It's what people wanted to see in those days. And they all made a, a lot of money during this period. Now, and by the time that like the Eisenhower era kind of stretched out and you got into the sixties stars like Stuart Granger and, and well, Errol Flynn had would, would die uh, shortly thereafter. And, you know, uh, Fairbanks, his his father Douglas Fairbanks uh, Senior had been dead for years, and you know John Barrymore. All these great uh, swashbuckling stars would kind of die because they all lived really fast and hard, and they kind of lived in that sort of uh, glamorous sort of constellation. Yeah, stardom had a really fucking particular set of yeah tendencies, especially with the buck, <laughs> especially with the Buckler stars. They all they all lived particularly fast, and so Stuart Granger did not really do too well. Uh, when the 60s kind of came on. He, uh, one of the last swashbucklers he made was called Moonfleet. It's more of like a like a smuggling uh, tale than really a buckler. There's not too many sword fights. There's a few. Um, but that movie was directed by Fritz Lang, and uh, it's kind of one of the last great ones. And there was a moment during that particular production where Stuart Granger met James Dean on the set. And... I just can only imagine like what it would have been like to be like a fly on the wall and to see like these two completely different worlds colliding, like the new star and the old star. And uh, I think Granger kind of knew at that point that he was on his way out. The, the roles weren't becoming as popular. And in fact, in the 60s, he kind of, this was in 58. And in the 60s, he kind of spent all his time working in Europe because he was difficult to employ because he was temperamental. But um I, I would have loved to have seen what their conversation would have been like. But yeah. Yeah. It, it must be said, what an era for gossip. Yes. <laughs> like just there are just books and books and books you can go find. Oh yeah. That are just gossip from this particular time. Oh yeah. Like uh, I, I highly recommend the The Moon's a Balloon by uh by David Niven. It's uh it's extraordinary. Also I'd like to mention quick one thing that we didn't mention while we were talking about the movie is just uh um Joseph Ruttenberg shot the movie. That dude was nominated for the Oscar for Best Cinematography ten times, and he won it four. Yeah, he, yeah, he's a uh, pretty decorated. Man's got trophies. Yeah, all the all of these guys were kind of that were involved in this movie were just sort of um like bastions of the. <laughs> dude of the... shot a he shot a movie called Bachelor in Paradise. Yeah, which means a very different thing now. It definitely does. <laughs> but. Yeah, I mean, the guys who made this movie, like Richard Thorpe, has like I don't know, like a hundred credits, like something stupid. He st- he started working on the Wizard of Oz, but he was fired after two weeks. Um, 
And then he was replaced by George Cukor because he had different ideas about how to portray Dorothy. He wanted her to be like much older and kind of with a fake blonde wig. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. Before we get anyway. too carried away, fellas, and by fellas I mean Liam. I think we all want to hear from mm. Liam. Yeah, I'm dying to know. Liam, ball is in your court, in your royal court of Ruritania. Your coronation. It's your coronation. What did you think about the prisoner of Zenda? I feel like karma has has swung back my way, and uh, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm getting hit with some of what Mitch got hit by. Um, I'm I'm being a bit facetious. I I, I liked I really liked the humor in this movie. That was there was a a thread of humor that would just keep popping up, and so so there were some really clever lines in this movie and some funny little. Uh, little action shots like i like the the opening disclaimer is funny about how i mean mitch recited it right at the beginning there and then they return to like a a little letter occasionally and you see some amendments being made to it that was funny there's some there's some cool lines but my my biggest issue with this movie that made it sort of a wash for me um is that it just takes so long for the swashbuckling to get happening. I was questioning if I even knew what a swashbuckler was because we were an hour into this thing and it was absolutely nothing like I expected. There was no adventure. There was no action. It was just a whole lot of talking. And I really like movies with just talking. Um, I've, I've said that before, but I'm not big on uh, regal stuff, imperial looking stuff. I'm not big on like uh, period pieces that date back decades and decades. And so this being straight from the 50s and, and having all that flavor to it and all those lavish costumes and, and big European sets and something that just it doesn't it doesn't tickle my fancy uh, um, just based on what I've seen in my life. I'm just not there yet. And may maybe I'll get there eventually. But right now, uh that whole first hour was just sort of tough for me to sit through. And then when stuff really started popping off in the, in the last half hour, there's a little gunfight, a chase sequence. There's a, there's a wicked sword fight. And I liked all that stuff. And I just thought, man, if this was a blockbuster, why is that not in there earlier? And what, why isn't it throughout the movie more? Uh, because before that, it just felt a bit, a, a bit flat and like a it's bit, a bit of a, uh, like, like kind of like they had to um, like they just weren't able to like choreograph many more scenes than they did because I can't I, I don't think that saving it until the last half hour was like a big payoff where like all this tension has been building and finally it releases it, it just it went once it happened it felt like they definitely could have put some of this stuff in earlier so so all together um, I I didn't like the movie much, but I did like uh, a, f a fair amount of things about it, mainly the humor and uh, the the action sequences that come later in the film. Yeah, that, that's completely fair. Like the the first half of the movie kind of plays out a bit like a chamber drama, like a chamber room drama. Like it, it doesn't. Uh, I think like the the sort of like uh, deceit of of impersonating a king. Uh, it only goes so far, right? Like, I don't think this movie is like the perfect movie, but I find that that those bits are kind of like charming enough, and Stuart Granger is charming enough, and the rest of the supporting cast is interesting enough that it kind of 
uh, moves along well enough for me. Uh, but I, I do agree that it, it is a weirdly balanced buckler. And that's kind of one of the reasons why, why I kind of picked it because it's, it's not, um, it's not like the other ones necessarily where they, it's not they, like dudes on ships go, like swinging yeah, across. It's, it's not chasms. like, it's not like Captain Blood or, or, uh, you know, like the, the Red Pirate or anything like that. Like movies like that, or the, sorry, the Crimson Pirate. Or movies like that 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 yeah um, we were definitely going to correct you on that one so thank God you stepped in this was with Burt Lancaster oh uh, well pardon me for talking yeah. shit <laughs> don't talk shit about Burt um, but yeah so it, it's not like those ones it is a weirdly balanced film and that's kind of one of the reasons why I wanted to discuss it uh, I I think th- I personally think the payoff works and I think that there's like enough like back and forth and trickery and throwing of daggers and that that it, that it works for me but. Liam or Corey, what do you think? Well, I want to agree that it's bizarre in how it's structured because the payoff happens and then the movie ends very quickly. Yeah, it just rides. The movie's like it like wipes its hands. It's like, well, the buckling's over, folks. So yeah. uh, <laughs> we can just go now. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does feel like that. <laughs> you, you got what you paid for. James yeah. Mason gets away. He jumps out the window. Uh, <laughs> okay, there's, goodbye. There's actually a sequel in, in the book, but like that, there's a sequel book about about them going after him. Uh, do they get him? Do we know? They do. Yeah. Ah. I've I've read it. Well, there we go. I feel uh, I feel vindicated. That's a good point, Corey. It does feel sort of clinical in that way, where it it has the the initial setup. It has all the characters meeting each other, the the um, confusion and the trickery, and then you get your action, and then it's like there there you go. We got all the parts, so that's it. That's kind of very much uh, typical for like the the blockbuster of the time. Um, it's very sort of neat and tidy and uh, wrapped up. And then uh, they say their b- goodbyes politely as he exits Ruritania and crosses the border into Lord knows where. Uh, it must be said that fate does not always make the right man king. <laughs> very true. Very true. So uh, I'm. I once again feel like maybe I'm sitting in a bit of a middle ground here. Classic centrist move. The middle man. Um, the middleman that's me uh i like i really enjoyed watching it um but i do think it's strange how it's weighted mm-hmm. like so much of the uh so much of the action is like backfilled <laughs> that it's giving you all this space and time to sort of like get a handle on the characters and like the court intrigue that we're getting and sort of setting pieces up and then everything just comes together really quickly. Uh, so in terms of like how it's structured, I don't know if I love it because I also think that maybe one scene closer to the middle of the movie that has a bit more of that action in it, a little bit more of a chase. I think maybe when James Mason stops by the boar hunting house that they did the setup for um maybe if that had a bit of an actiony bent to it that might be where you could place it there is great comedy there that's a good scene yeah. i do like it a lot and stuff that i like about the movie is that um you know for a movie mostly written in 1937 i don't know the wit stands mm-hmm. like it's fun to listen to the actors i think are all dialed in to get these these lines out and the timing right and you're the really just in, 
the camp and you're really enjoying the back and forth that you get everybody's filling their role really well i'd like to give a particular i really like the lewis calhern yes that dude fucking rules uh he had it dialed in um which character was he he's uh, like the older he's, he's colonel job yeah. oh right yeah yeah i liked him too he's yeah. just like the steadfast uh saved many a royal uh, <laughs> royal reputation <laughs> yeah uh, and uh yeah, very good um i i i mostly like stuart granger um he is kind of uh not my favorite a polarizing but... guy he apparently was a huge asshole um, a lot of them were <laughs> yeah oh, no yeah but i, I mean there's parts of it that I like a lot with him, and some of it I'm just kind of like, okay, like yeah, he he eh. was originally under uh, under contract to Howard Hughes, and he was married to Jane Greer at the time, and they tried to they were the kind of like the first celebrity couple to kind of like sue their studio boss and win, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, like I, How- bet the, I bet the system loved that. Yeah, Howard Hughes was like a, extremely controlling and abusive, and like would like call them up at like midnight and try and meet with uh, with. Um, his wife and he just like hated him until he had like they actually had like this plot where they were going to invite hughes over to their house and then push him off the escarpment behind their house kill him him. but but or that's how they tell the story kind of jokingly in like an interview in the 70s but um they're like yeah we were gonna push him off a cliff but (laughs) uh yeah i I want to watch that movie a real biopic a real filibuster yeah, the rich, the, their plan to kill the richest man in the world who also happened to be a movie producer. And their boss. <laughs> yeah, and their boss. Yeah, um, um, yeah. I think I uh, James Mason steals the movie, though. Oh, he, he steals the show in his purple, uh, his purple fit. I know. And he's just like Machiavelli. Oh yeah, like, he is just like scheming nonstop. He he's uh, I saw something somewhere describe him as charmingly amoral. He is, which I think is a pretty good phrase. Yeah, and what what does he say? Like he's like, come out, I'm unarmed, and then as he's pointing a gun at the door with two other dudes with yes, guns. I love this. <laughs> I love that. Made me laugh out loud. And then uh, and then what? Like Stuart Granger replies, like, okay, come in, I'm unarmed too. And he's like, in England, that simply just isn't done. <laughs> Going back on his words, <laughs> I know. Yeah, like it. There's something very for lack of a better word quaint about some of the like older timey like touch points and that the, the, con- like, the cultural touch points yeah like when the when the king stops at the waltz everybody stops oh and... my god that yeah. that went on too fucking that they didn't need to do it four times i thought it was good <laughs> i think like two or three would have been plenty uh yeah. also marrying your cousin yeah classic yeah and everybody, um, everybody wants to marry that one cousin yeah i think uh actually in regards to that i could do without the romantic angle just because i don't think the movie sells it very well because it's it's locked into the conventions of they just met and instantly fall in love which is just like and he's pretending to be someone he's not which i know is kind and of fun but also like kind of creepy yeah and it's definitely a little bit and uh I don't know. It just it it's so overwrought, <laughs> and mm-hmm. I understand why. But that that I could do without. Um, I do want to say, I love the way the movie looks. I think the sets are great, costumes are great. In particular, I'd like to give credit to how the last like third of it is shot. Oh, uh, yeah. with all that shadow and all the lurking, 
and then you've got a lot of like pageantry with the fighting and then it's all just presented in a really like clean interesting looking dark like but easy to comprehend way uh there's a lot to like uh but it's not like i'm not like head over heels for it but i did like it i enjoyed watching it yeah i'm again i don't think this is like the greatest movie ever made i've just like hyped it up a lot because i wanted to (laughs) i wanted to like throw something into the mix that we normally don't do and uh this is definitely this is definitely that but that last sequence with the with the sword fighting i i understand that that Stuart granger actually like injured himself fairly badly because they are swinging around pieces of metal and that's like the core the choreography that goes into like coordinating a swashbuckler and that kind of fight and the actual risk that that your stars undertake because they are just like fighting with with pieces of metal is is fairly significant yeah the fact that they're doing it yeah it's just kind of wild like in itself like there's that part during that duel where uh Stuart granger like push like gets james mason on the ground and then he goes to like get some distance and james mason like throws a stool at him that knocks him over and then when james mason chases after him he like gets flipped over with like a foot like i don't know if i'm describing it well but you might remember what yeah, i yeah yeah he does like that sort of like, like fall. yeah flip. and it's just yeah. like there's so much shit going on and i really like that part of the movie too it's also finally like when you're starting to get the payoff yeah of it um i think the movie's got two very distinct strengths which is like the the dialogue play when it hits i think it's really good but um Mm. it definitely has like a sense for action at least in that duel and i it would have been interesting to see more of that um it sort of sags in the middle a bit just when it gets a little bit more like all the cards are kind of on the table but you're waiting for stuff yeah and the sort of the romance i i agree i think that those parts do drag and I've seen this movie probably like six or seven times. Um, that seems about right. That seems like on par. Yeah. Um, Liam, is there a particular like scene or moment that like sticks out to you as something you especially did like or maybe didn't? Like, is there anything that's super notable or did it just kind of blur together a bit? No, there, there's notable stuff for sure. I'd agree with you that I think the romance is overwrought and just feels um, like paint by numbers they they had they had to do it It, i feel like i've I've seen that sort of thing before particularly near the very end when they finally have that that big conversation and that declaration of love and it just it at that point i feel like that's not where the heart of the story is anymore because things have become so spicy with all the fighting and then we just return to this person who uh didn't get that much to do anyways and she's uh she's now like the center of of uh his focus and so um the romance didn't really work for me um but honestly other than that basically everything in that last 30 minutes i i I really got exciting like i i really liked the the gunfight that happens right after that great line that you guys said where uh where James Mason says that he's unarmed. And then um, we get Stuart Granger running out of the window and he jumps off a roof onto a tree and that tree bends and allows him to land on the ground more softly. And then I, I also liked him creeping through the moat and, and climbing up that wall. And, and we see it in like a pretty long take and it's it's fairly quiet as he's just kind of 
creeping along and he has to dip beneath the water and hold his breath and then come back up like that's the sort of thing that uh it it was just like adventurous and fun um and so so i like that stuff and so i've just got to think that you know i got to get it out of my head that every movie from like the 50s or whatever is a classic you know it's just like it's just like today where you're gonna have some movies that do things better than other movies and some that are just okay and some that are bad and and i think this is just one of the one of the okay ones and then because uh it's not really my thing to begin with then i might enjoy it a bit less than that but still like the the last half hour was so fun that i would be really excited to check out a movie from this time that leans in to those elements more and has more of a focus on on the action and the fighting because i really got a lot out of that here yeah i i definitely think that like there are other bucklers that we could we could do that are more interesting i mean Corey has seen scaramouche which was made by the same year as practically the same production in a, in a lot of ways both both out of mgm and it is a Again, the final duel in that is exquisite. It's probably like my favorite final that duel. That duel goes hard. In like any swashbuckler. <laughs> um, it, it has similar sort of pacing problems. That is, it is longer than this movie, I think. But it does have sort of more stuff going on in the middle, um, which I think works to its credit. But I don't find it nearly as charming as this film. Um, I don't find the characters, the characterizations as, as interesting. I just want to like correct a mistake that I may have made earlier. <laughs> I said, uh, I said, uh, Jane Greer was married to, to, um, Stuart Granger. It's not Gene Simmons was, um, hilarious. I can't hear that name and not laugh that somebody was named Gene. Someone else was named Gene Simmons. <laughs> yeah. That's just, it's, and I know that's like a stupid, like child brain thing reaction to have. But I can't imagine Gene Simmons <laughs> being married to Stuart Granger. Yeah. Because it's just like, wow, I didn't think Granger yeah. probably didn't love rock and roll. Yeah. But uh, Liam Seems was like more of a classical guy. Liam was kind of talking about like what he liked about the buckler. And I think, um, I think that that is like really just like the fine tradition of the buckler. Like when you see the sort of the acrobatics and the the leaping from the trees, I think like many of the great buckler stars, Douglas Fairbanks uh, Sr. was kind of like the first one to do it with the original Zorro movies and sort of doing his own stunts. And he was a uh, an acrobat. Burt Lancaster was famously a trapezist and he worked in a circus before he got into show business. <laughs> Which is just wild. Uh, Which yeah. Which is just wild. And uh, again, you also have all these men who who in these movies who have like an excellent sort of um pedigree with 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 fencing like they i think maybe granger <laughs> learned it in the military in the british army because it was practiced then um but it's the same with with many of the other ones and they say that the best fencer in all of of classic hollywood d- during this period was basil rathbone who played sherlock holmes in like a lot of the uh yeah older movies but he was apparently the best uh because he was like a actually like a fencing champion um but it's Holly, old hollywood is fucked up man yeah. that way <laughs> yeah and uh, so this is this this movie has a really excellent sort of example of saber style fencing and i don't remember who it was who did the uh the the uh coordination for this but there are there are many guys in old hollywood who just like made their career by just coordinating sword fights and that's what they did in fact one of the biggest ones uh, actually opened the Ottawa Fencing Society here where we uh where we, Oh no shit. Where we live, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think his name was Ralph Ralph B. Faulkner, maybe. Yeah. I think he was the biggest one in Los Angeles in nineteen thirty two. Errol Flynn, he taught Ronald Coleman. So yeah, I guess he would have done this one. But uh he like 
famously like died in like five times in his movies because he's great but i think this <laughs> dynamic in hollywood is really fascinating because i mean it's such a unique kind of dynamic in the history of show business and we don't really see this anymore we don't see our leading men like taught how to like handle taught sword- how to fence taught how to handle swords by like olympic olympic saber champions like you just i don't think you really see that as much today um but it is interesting or if you do it's not the f- focus of the PR yeah. campaign that makes us aware of it. And it is like a very physical genre, even though there's a lot of like chamber room stuff in this one. I mean, like Robert Donat, who was in The Count of Monte Cristo, he's one of my favorite sort of 30s matinee idols. Uh, he had chronic asthma and uh, he was going to be the lead in Captain Blood. He did do The Count of Monte Cristo in 1934, which absolutely slaps. But he had asthma. And because of that, it was difficult for him to like to, to shoot like extensively and they had to halt shooting because of it and that's why errol flynn got the breakout role in captain blood because donat was no good but i love robert donat and i think he's like a very charming actor and the ghost goes west which is a light-hearted comedy that stars him on the criterion channel is one of my all-time favorite films the ghost goes west so my favorite thing about talking about movies like the prisoner of zenda when you know because we're not all necessarily super well acquainted with it um is that when conversations about old Hollywood just become this, where it's just like name dropping people and sharing weird anecdotes, because I could have more, I do have more to say about the movie, but I'm much more interested in this asthmatic fencing actor or whatever the fuck, like, because it's that thing where, um, you enjoy a movie like the prisoner of Zenda, I think in a very straightforward way, and i don't mean that to disparage the movie but it's like you're gonna get some witty snappy dialogue you're gonna get this uh particular style of story that comes with a particular style of acting for this kind of movie and you you know what you're in for right like it's not a big mystery of what you're necessarily going to get so it's it's challenging because all you can end up pointing to is like individual scenes of like oh that was a good snappy line or like that delivery was really good a couple interesting shots and that's not bad it's just that's what it is like like i love the shot where michael and uh james mason um whatever his character's name was rupert uh, Hensow. Hensow. Hensow, yeah uh are scheming by the fire and they're sitting in these big like wingback chairs and you can't see their faces because of how huge the chairs are <laughs> and they each occasionally lean forward so you know like who's doing what it's very and i menacing. just think that's great yeah also just a lot of smoking oh yeah uh, everybody's just getting lit on these yeah. cigs brother constantly. brother michael is just smoking it one after another um, uh, I can't believe that uh, Stuart Granger manages to save his own life by saying, hey, if you're going to kill me, can I smoke first? Yeah, it's so good. But <laughs> like, it's really interesting when you sort of see like the roots of where this sort of like this kind of movie and what it what it did. Like, because I mean, eventually, like the, the rapiers and in, in, in swashbucklers became lightsabers. Right. So you've got. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You've, you've just got like, I don't know. All this, this Star Wars is a great crossover of like martial arts cinema and the buckler when and it like comes samurai, to the combat. Samurai yeah. films too. But yeah, it's it's just like so much fun to me. I love these movies. And I could go on and on about like there's like just legendary feuds between people who work together making these movies. Uh, like <laughs> Every, everybody fucking hated each oh, other. Everybody like Errol Flynn and Michael Curtiz. I think their flute feud is perhaps like one of like the greatest. 
Um, Michael Curtiz made Casablanca, but he and Flynn made 12 movies together. Some of the best swashbucklers ever made, like The Seahawk and uh, uh, Captain Blood. So many. Um, what a fucking cool ass name. You've said that so many times. Captain Blood. Captain that Blood. That sounds like a movie Liam would love yeah. on title alone. I don't know. Yeah, what, I'm watching that one. I don't know if you've ever heard of <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard of the movie The Charge of the Light Brigade. It came out in 1936. Yeah. Uh there's a there's a movie essentially it's considered to have like the the single most like killing and wounding of animals like in the history of, of, oh my of God. making movies and so when they actually filmed like that valiant charge of the light brigade they had like a bunch of cameras and 125 horses well thousands of horses but they set up like trip wires um all around oh where, where they shot it fuck and then they just told the horses to charge and pretty much everyone in in los angeles who had a horse was like an extra in this movie it was like massively expensive and uh they injured a hundred and they injured about 125 horses and 25 had to be killed or you know euthanized and errol flynn was like a huge animal lover and he, like he was absolutely furious with curtis and he didn't want him to do this and he had already beat up like an extra behind set and actually sent him to the hospital for like mistreating a horse before and he punched uh michael curtis after doing this and there was, was like screaming matches on on sets and then like uh curtis like had also like during another shoot during the seahawk wasn't happy with like Flynn's sense of danger so he told the men to remove like the tips from their rapiers and they're just what like the fuck? actually hap- it, this shoot wasn't dangerous enough so we're going to make you duel with real with sword. real with real swords you, you just don't seem scared enough so we're just gonna do that to you like i don't know it was a different era in hollywood jesus christ so the, also to be fair he was right about being mad about the horses that is a that is a waste yeah of just for for one fucking scene like yeah. we're just gonna jesus christ terrible so it's it's kind of it's kind of crazy how they how they used to do this um but and then they, they just sort of fell out of out of popularity because this kind of like decadence and extravagance just wasn't wasn't for anyone's taste anymore but like the 70s apparently like people were complaining that you couldn't even find a holly ship a, a, a pirate ship left in hollywood um <laughs> like they just want like the costumes and everything left over. That's such a like. Funny where do I get complaint. a pilot ship? I want to shoot a. Yeah, come on down so to funny, come on down but... to the bay. We'll get you a pirate ship. Um, yeah, I think another sort of beautiful uh, homage <laughs> to the Bucklers, like is movies like The Goonies. They yeah. had a pirate ship in Hollywood. Yeah, good point. Yeah, that's another sort of great example of it. Appearing. Mitch, are you a goon or not, Mitch? Liam. Are you a Goonies fan? Yeah, I really like the Goonies, but you know what? I have never seen the Goonies all the way through. I've only ever caught it on TV halfway, uh, a little after it started, right before the end. I've never seen it all the way through. Does it have a sequel? Can we work backwards nope. somehow? Are we no, just... sequel. no sequel. No <laughs> sequel. The most recent time I saw it was when I was in uh, the lobby of a tattoo parlor and it was playing on the TV. So I watched it then <laughs> while, while Brianna got uh, pierced. But again, I didn't see it all the way through. Damn. Well, um, it's my white whale. <laughs> uh I don't know what else to say about The Prisoner of Zenda other than I liked it. I liked watching it. I don't yeah, know. Like, I don't know what else we should do. <laughs> yeah, Mitch, I, I don't mean, want I, you I to feel shortchanged. 
That's my main. I don't thing, feel this had a lot I don't of feel build changed. That's all. That's all I'm worried about. I'm, I don't care about the listener being shortchanged. I'm worried about Mitch. Of course, yeah. No, I, I'm really glad we watched it. I really am. It was, uh, it was. I was excited to see it. It was fun to stretch those muscles. It was fun to figure out what I liked, what I didn't like. Um, I'll be excited. I'm excited for any other picks Mitch has, and uh, this one, it just like. It's just, I guess it's just a pacing thing and then just like a, a location costuming thing. It's not, it's just like not my preference. So even when the characters are talking, like I've, I've seen a whole lot of boring slasher movies that have pacing problems, but if they take place in the early eighties and like the woods, I, I just kind of have fun looking around and seeing their costumes and, and hearing that vernacular and stuff. But when it takes place in the fifties and uh, they're all so um royal and in these big expensive costumes it just it just it doesn't connect with me so much so then i just found myself uh trying my best to follow along with the dialogue and then waiting uh until stuff picked up and then and then once it picked up in the in the action sequences i was happy but i then i wish we got more because you know i think the first sword gets drawn in in the last 15 minutes of the movie and so i was just thinking yeah. oh man why why couldn't that have come a bit earlier that's all. what what i wouldn't give to see liam in one of these costumes i would pay i would pay like handsomely a lot of money I uh I had to take a, a I didn't have to take it no one made me take it but I took a, I took a drama class in university. Somebody put a sword to my head and made me take a drama class. <laughs> I took a drama class in university and it was a listed under English and so I thought that it was studying plays. I thought we were going to go to plays and and study them and uh, examine playwriting and stuff. But no, we we just, the whole class was an acting class and we had to. The whole semester just prepare a play and at the end of the semester we put it on uh on campus for whoever wanted to come and so uh once i realized that i was a bit trepidatious but i decided uh to stretch my muscles again sort of like this movie and i was like yeah i'll stick it out see how it goes and uh near the end of the year um a sort of i think it was an impromptu thing some people from china came with a tv camera and uh <laughs> this woman who like taught a specific type of chinese theater and she taught us all how to do it and uh dressed us up in these wild costumes and i had to and i know this isn't the sort of costumes we see in this movie but it's just an example of me wearing something i i wouldn't normally wear i i had to wear this giant samurai robe and with these really big shoulders that gets tied up in all these sorts of fancy ways and it was a giant hat and uh i think that footage like might exist somewhere in china now at this point because i think they were <laughs> filming it for like a news station or something i never really exactly figured out what it was for but holy uh, shit i need to see that yeah so if if anyone wants to can that be like the thumbnail for the down, show if, oh, if someone God. can track it down, absolutely it can. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree with what you're saying about, about being comfortable in like in certain like periods. And I mean I'm not trying to change the subject from your from your exquisite Chinese garb, but <laughs> I totally I totally see what you mean. I think that this film is just like a piece of escapism and you can take it or 
or leave it. Like it's not much more than that. It's it's just like Eisenhower escapism. Or I guess it would have been Truman during this period. Yeah. But um yeah. I would say check it out, anybody listening. I'd say it's I think it's worth it. I think it's a fun romp. Um <laughs> funnily enough, like Z seemed to my friend Zach who I saw it with last night seemed to like it quite a bit. And uh, Abby fell asleep, which was Mood. before the sword fight. Um, See, it's hard to make it to the sword, the sword fight sooner. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think if we if we do another one, I think we maybe do like the adventures of Don Juan or uh, or uh, something that, like that. So that sounds exciting. That's what they're adventures. Flint. I mean, they, they they can't just save the adventures for the last yeah. fifteen minutes, right? Evil Spaniards. It's it's good stuff. It's good stuff. To follow this up, if I understand our plan correctly, I think we're pivoting right back into something that is completely not Mitch's bag. Is that correct? I think so. Yeah, Corey, I'm thinking we either are pivoting into Ghoulies 3 or we should see if we can wrangle up some people for Sex in the City 2. That's what um, I'm thinking. I think, I think it should be Ghoulies 3 so we can get some scheduling lead up. Sure, that sounds good. So... You heard it here first. Mitch, I'm sorry. Ghoulies 3, is this the one where they go to college? Yep. Yeah, and we've all been to college, so maybe maybe we'll find some escapism <laughs> We'll identify there. with the I Ghoulies. Wish, I wish it was Ghoulies 3 went to the gallows. <laughs> Go- <laughs> Ghoulies 3 go swashbuckling. <laughs> so uh, that's where we're going next week. Uh, to the gallows with the Ghoulies. And you can watch that in advance if you want to follow along. If not, we're all done with the Prisoner of Zenda. We've buckled our due. We've swashed our bucks. We've, um, I don't know. <laughs> we've bucked our swashes. We've bucked our swashes. And uh, I can't think of anything else to ask. But Mitch, do you have anything you would like to plug? On God! Yeah! I feel like I should be dodging, but... <laughs> Much I don't like, know what he is. Much <laughs> like the prisoner of Zenda, this is the most exciting part of the podcast. It comes at the very end. Hey. Dang it. And now, time for your last fencing lesson without your head. <laughs> Dude, I'm truly on guard right now. Mitch is doing that with the, t- the tips off those swords, too. It's true. He's I in mortal tell. danger. You can hear it. It's actually a knife and a fork. <laughs> I feel like the knife is going to win that one. I mean, there's so many points on a fork, though. Yeah, but you don't bring a fork to a knife fight. You bring a fork to, like, a, a death match. Fucking James Mason brought a gun to a sword fight, and he still lost. Good- <laughs> goodbye, play actor. Splash. Oh, and James Mason... Uh, also definitely belly flopped into that water that oh, was not that, that was, was not a, that was a seamless dive that was they should they should have done a take two on that one that did that not was, look cool that was the well in the great race which like spoofs this movie he just goes right through the bottom of a boat <laughs> he does uh the great race fucking rules that we could never do that though that movie's like three hours um i do love it though anyway i'm supposed to be gone uh yeah so, yeah uh, get your plugs until next time uh liam do you have anything you want to plug yeah you guys can find my film writing alter ego graham the haunted marshmallow on twitter and letterboxd my username is graham the mallow 
Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Mr. Corey Price. You can listen to the other show that I do, uh, MK Podquest, with our friend Neil. We are deep in the midst of a four-part miniseries that spans four different cartoons as a crossover. So not just Mortal Kombat. Uh, we did our Street Fighter episode. This week is Savage Dragon. And then next week we're back to Mortal Kombat and then we're doing Wing Commander before getting back to the rest of that. So you can find that MK PodQuest on all your services. And with that out of the way, thank you all once again for listening to this swashbuckling episode of They Made Another One. You can find us all over the internet on Twitter at They Made Another, which is all one word, and on Letterboxd at T-M-A-O. You can find episodes on Anchor, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Breaker, and everywhere else as They Made Another One. You can reach us via email at tmaopodcast at gmail.com with recommendations for future episodes, questions, comments, and your favorite piece of old Hollywood gossip. Our fantastic thumbnail art is done by Jade Dickinson, who you can find on Instagram at Jade Sketches. And with that out of the way, get your studying caps on because we're going to college next week. And they made another one. Well, I'm keeping that. Very nice.